0: The corporate worship of the church has been the battleground of individualistic, self-centered Christians since the formation of the church. Beginning in the book of Acts, we see that the gathering on the Lord's Day was an opportunity for selfish, self-centered Christians to be put on display From Acts chapter 6 to the division among the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews. To the church in Corinth who would use the Lord's Supper as an occasion to get drunk. And eat all the food before the poor could come and have a meal. To the churches in Galatia and throughout Asia Minor. To even the church in Ephesus. Throughout the ages, the church of Jesus Christ has suffered on the Lord's Day. Even in our own contemporary day, we know that the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day is an occasion for division. I like contemporary music. I prefer traditional. I would rather have a band. I prefer the organ. I like it really warm. I like it really cold. I like gothic buildings. I like simple and plain. I is the problem in every one of those statements. The gathering of God's people have been plagued over personal preferences. and Historically, there's a littering across the landscape of individuals teaching particular things that they thought was best... Rather, but really wasn't biblical. As Christians, perhaps you face that temptation. Perhaps you grew up in a tradition. And that tradition is so strong for you. That to see church done any other way. Is heretical. Anti-Christian. This morning we want to think. About what the Bible says. About the local gathering. And particularly when we gather on the Lord's Day. Have you ever given thought to what the Bible says we should do when we get together? Have you ever considered that that God might care a little bit about what his people do? If you know your Bible at all, from the very beginning, in Genesis and throughout the law, God was very specific about how he would be worshipped. He did not leave it to human creativity. He didn't say, Aaron, I want you to think about some really creative ways to worship me and go do that. Aaron did that, didn't he? When Moses was on the mountain getting the the Ten Commandments, uh, they they said, hey, we need to worship God, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to make this little golden calf thing, and we're going to worship God that way. Throughout the Bible, we see example after example. Uh, we remember that famous pageant, Uzzah reaches out his hand to touch the ark. He had been taught from the very beginning, since he was a little boy, in his mom and dad's tent, you do not touch the Ark of the Covenant whatsoever. What seemed like such a, a really a nice gesture, wasn't it? He was trying to keep it from getting dirty. He knew that God did not want to be approached in that way. Well, throughout the Bible, we have example after example that God cares how he is worshipped. And so we want to think this morning about the, the spirit-filled life, how you and I follow Christ, and particularly in the context of the local church. Now, i um, thankful for Pastor Rod preaching last week. What I I trust was an excellent sermon from Revelation as we thought about the hope of eternity, hope of eternal life. And uh, one of the things you see in Revelation is singing. You ever thought about that? A a, a book that is filled with fear, the church is singing. There's no fear because Jesus wins. And so they're singing. There's all this singing going on in that book. Why? Because of the revelation that, we, that Pastor Rod taught. That there's this eternal hope we have. This, this home that we have. And, and so we sing with joy for that. And so this, this sort of picks up on that theme, theme that we thought about last week. And a number of weeks ago we were in, in Ephesians. We've been teaching through this of course. And Paul has really been giving us a glimpse into the Christian life. He laid the foundation in chapters 1 through 3 about God's eternal purposes in Christ and how this redemption, this salvation that you and I enjoy is not new, but rather it stretches all the way to eternity past. Trillions and trillions and trillions into the infinite past, God purposed, planned to redeem sinners, to elect people that he would redeem from their sin. And dwell with for all of eternity and Paul laid out this beautiful picture of what we once were and what we are now and in light of that he says that we are children of light we've been adopted into God's family and we are to take on the family resemblance and so in Ephesians 5 1 Paul says be imitators of God as beloved children so if you're a Christian this morning we learned that That we are God's children and we are to act like our Father who is in heaven. And because we are His children, we are a new creation in Christ. And we are to walk in wisdom and understanding. We are to recognize that we live in evil times, evil days. And we are to, in the old King James, redeem the time. For the days are evil. It matters how we live. As Christians, we're not to be passive in our lives, but actively every day, day by day, step by step, seeking to follow Christ and to live in light of this new identity we have. So Paul is continuing this theme of walking, which simply means the character of your life. If we were to look at your life, look at my life, what's the character of our life? How is our walk? And he turns now in a summation form, in a transitional time in the letter, to say, here's what I want you to do. I want your life to be characterized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I want your life to be characterized by the fullness of God, and that's going to show up in, in several ways in your life. And we're going to think about where we see the indwelling of the Spirit show up in our life. We all know the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians, right? Love, joy, peace, patience going on, right? Right? But we often neglect to think about what Paul says is the fruit of the Spirit here in Ephesians 5. Well, I invite you to turn there now if you haven't already. Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing along here in that paragraph, the bottom of page 978 in the Pew Bibles. I'm picking back up with verse 18 this week through verse 21. The weeks ahead, we'll think about marriage, we'll think about our relationships with our children. Think about relationships with our co-workers and our bosses. And then finally conclude with the armor of God that we are to put on. But here in verse 18, Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I've summarized this passage in this way. Spirit-filled living results in a corporate life of worship that is characterized by singing, thanksgiving, and mutual submission. In other words, As we sing to one another songs of praise about our Savior, with our hearts filled with thankfulness to God the Father, and submit to one another through an ordered church, we evidence a spirit-filled life. So this morning we're not talking about the higher life, or if you you were a Christian in the 90s, that there's even Bibles, the spirit-filled Bibles. Christian or something, I don't know. Uh, We're not talking about higher life stuff here today, if you're familiar with that theology. What we're talking about is ordinary life. We're talking about what it means to be a Christian. So I don't want you to think, oh man, this is spirit-filled living. That's for the the, the elite Christian. No, Paul is exhorting the ordinary Christian, the everyday Christian, the you, me, Christian, to pursue God in this way, to have a spirit-filled life. And so the purpose of our time this morning is really to to teach us what a spirit-filled life looks like. What does it mean to be filled and dwelled with the Spirit of God? What results will show up in your life when the Holy Spirit indwells you? Paul asks, I think, a very helpful question for you this morning to think about. Christian, he's writing to you. He's writing to Christians, believers. He says, what are you filling up on? What are you filling up with? What are you consuming? What are you, in other words, getting drunk on? Is it the fruit of this world? Or the fruit of the Spirit of God? This morning our text really outlines two points. Don't fill up on wine. Very clear command, right? But rather, fill up on God. Don't fill up on wine, but fill up on God. Just to be very clear on the onset, I don't want you to miss this point. Paul's point, his sort of thrust, isn't to prohibit drunkenness. Though drunkenness is a sin we'll think about here just for briefly. The main idea of the text is be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right? So we might might like to spend all our time talking about drunkenness. And we, we should talk about that. But the thrust of the text is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, first here, look what he writes. It's very clear. I mean, anyone who can read, do not get drunk with wine. Now we could sit here and try to figure out, well, winds when, we want someone drunk and and all those kind of things. We don't need to do that. Um, Paul's exhortation is very clear: don't get drunk with wine. Now we might, you know, for the super spiritual one, you know, the it's like, oh, he just says, don't get drunk with wine. No, that's not his point, right? Uh, The point is, don't get drunk, right? Scripture regularly warns against the dangers of drunkenness. I mean, we can find passages all throughout it. You don't have to to go far. Noah, right? What's the first thing he does? He gets off the ark. He plants a vineyard. This is how dedicated to drunkenness this dude was. He plants some, some grapes, waits for them to grow, then ferments them, then gets wasted. I mean, that's... That's an alcoholic, all right? Uh, that's some, that's some per, uh, perseverance and sin, right? Throughout the Bible, we see that. Of course, the Proverbs are, are one of the most helpful places to go on the subject of drunkenness. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. With the exhortation not to be among drunkards or among gluttons, eaters of meat. Or later in, in Proverbs 23, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In other words, when you drink alcohol, the more you drink, the easier it is to drink it. That's what the point there is. So helpfully, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to, he, he, he was a physician, he was a doctor before he went into ministry. And he used to tell his church, he would say, listen, nothing wrong with alcohol. But here's the problem with alcohol. You lose all self-control with it. And when you're exhorted as a Christian, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You are essentially causing yourself to lose self-control, which is a fruit of what being a Christian is. He would regularly exhort his church. He'd say, you know, you who are the stronger brother, right? Remember that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is telling him, hey, if you're a stronger brother, don't drink in front of a weaker brother that might struggle with that. Lloyd-Jones used to say this, well, maybe you're the weaker brother, the one who's consuming. Maybe you're the weaker one. In, In other words, he was concerned that his church was more like the world than like the one Jesus had called to. Jesus himself warned his disciples. He said, watch, your, watch out, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of life. Or Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, has very clear warning to the church. But now I write to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother... If he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. He says, if that guy is a drunk and he says he's a brother in Christ, you need to get away from him because he's not. Friends, to be clear, God has given the gift of alcohol to be consumed to give glory to God, not to be abused. So want to be very clear here, while the Bible prohibits drunkenness, it does not prohibit the consumption of alcohol. In fact, we could look at passages throughout the Old Testament and new. See Paul, for example, telling young Timothy, drink a little, little strong drink there for your stomach. It's a medicinal thing. We, we see also the delight that one has in the wine, uh, the, the harvest right celebrations. Jesus himself was accused of being a drunkard which meant that he most likely consumed as well. Jesus, of course, famously turning water into wine. But friends, the point Paul makes here is that one, when one fills up with wine or with any alcoholic beverage to the point of drunkenness, it leads to, it results in debauchery. Look at here what he says. For that is debauchery. In other words, Paul is paralleling one example of filling up in this world. So it would be wrong to, like, I think, narrowly take this and say, okay, he's just talking about one particular thing. He's just talking about prohibition of alcohol here. No, that's not it. What he's doing, his point, is to emphasize the result of filling up in the Spirit by emphasizing the result of filling up on wine. Friend, do you struggle with drunkenness? Do you struggle with self-control in these ways? Brother, one of the ways that you can live in the light is by confessing your struggle to one another, getting help for those things, praying, seeking wisdom from other godly brothers. The remedy today, as you'll see, for drunkenness is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. A, a spiritual power greater than even the addiction of alcohol or marijuana or cigarettes or whatever it is that you're filling up on and not the spirit so perhaps this morning it's not alcohol maybe you're just filling up on the junk of this world maybe it's greed maybe it's materialism maybe you're just filling up on uh, that passage in proverbs linked alcohol and americans alcohol and gluttony right One of the greatest sins of Americans is gluttony, right? I mean, we eat like stupid amount of food, right? We're gluttonous. So this morning, it might might be food you're filling up on. It might be something else. But the point that Paul has is for you to think, what am I filling up on? What have I turned back to? What sin in my past have I returned to? Paul exhorts him, do not do this. He doesn't say stop doing this. He says, don't do this. In other words, he's not exhorting people who are drinking and getting drunk. He's exhorting people who used to be drunk, drunkards, and he's exhorting them not to turn back to that. Paul warns us not to return to our former ways, but rather to be filled by the Spirit of God. So let's look at this emphasis on the Spirit of God. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Notice what he writes here in that second half of verse 18. In contrast... In adversity, he says this, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. You remember back in chapter 3, at that hinge verse in chapter 3, Paul prayed, uh, he prayed this prayer, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and height? And depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know that big theology that He that He talks about in chapters one, two, and three? That big theology about God and the greatness of Christ, he turns and says, I want that in you. I want that in your life. I want you to resemble God's character in the world around you. I want you to be filled up on God. And so he prays that and here he exhorts them to to be filled. It's a it's a passive voice, isn't it? You see the passive nature of it. It's not something we do, but rather something that happens to us. Be filled by the Spirit would be a better translation. In other words, Paul isn't saying having the Holy Spirit The indwelling of the Spirit, that's different theology for a different day. What Paul is saying here is that the agent of your filling is the Spirit of God. The fullness of God is filled in you by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus promised his disciples in the high priestly prayer. That the helper is coming, right? The helper is coming and the helper is the Holy Spirit. He's going to teach you things and he's going to show you things. And he'll lead you in truth. He reminds the readers that the agent of the indwelling of this of God's presence in their life is the Holy Spirit. They may be tempted to fill up on other things, but they are to be filled with God's character in their life. He puts it in the passive voice to emphasize that it's not something we do, but something that is done to us. Those whom have been sealed by the spirit will be filled by the spirit. They were joined to him in prayer that they would be filled with the character of God expressed here in the passage we see before us. Paul continues here in verse 18 to say that when one is filled with the spirit, some things begin to show up in their life. Verses 19 through 21 hang off of that exhortation to be filled with the spirit. What Paul does here is he says, look, I want to give you four results of being filled with the spirit of God. How can we know if someone is indwelt by an invisible being? There's not some like, you know, scan. There's not some sort of like, you know, silly, you know, spiritual gift test. You know, that kind of stupid stuff. Um, There's none of that. How do we know? Well, Paul here says that when one is filled with the fullness of God, four results happen. Four ways that you can know that you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that you are growing into the fullness of God. Look at the four of them there. I'll, I'll just sort of enumerate them for you. First, addressing one another in Psalms. You speak to one another in Psalms. Secondly, you see in the second half of verse 19, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. See the I-N-G words? That's what we're looking at. Uh, thirdly, giving. Giving what? Giving thanks. And then finally, verse 21, submitting. So those four I-N-G words hang off of the exhortation to be filled with the Spirit. In in other words, what Paul again is saying is these are the results of one who's indwelt by the Spirit. Let's look at each of them. First, we see speaking to one another in songs of praise is a result of a Spirit-filled life. Look what he writes there. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice a few things of what he says here. Number one, that we that singing is a command and not a suggestion uh, while he is demonstrating result he is also exhorting them it is in an imperative address one another in song singing is a command not a suggestion god created you to sing do you know that it's one of the ways that you reflect god's character God is a singing God, apparently. God has revealed himself as one who sings, and he created you to sing. But not only has he created you to sing, he's commanded you to sing. And we'll see in a moment, we're compelled to sing because of the work that God has done. Friends, do you know that hymn singing is a distinctly Christian thing? It's a particularly thing that that Christians have been historically known for. This is why we print our music why we ex- go through all that expense to print the bulletin each week is because we believe that singing is commanded in Scripture. Nothing wrong with putting things on the board. We do it to teach and encourage you. Singing is commanded. Notice here also in the text who we're to sing to. We are to sing to one another. We're to sing to one another. I grew up in the, in the church growth movement. In the contemporary music movement, perhaps you were a part of that. One of the terrible side effects of that movement was that worship was seen as merely vertical and merely personal. You've seen them, right? And I'll make fun of them for a second because I was one of them. Eyes closed, hands lifted up. As if no one else is in the room and you and Jesus are having a little personal time together. Lights are dimmed down. You can't see a soul around you except for the performers up on the stage. Ever wonder why the people who built this building uh, 70 years ago put windows in it so you can see? Because the horizontal nature of worship. You see what he says here? Look at the text. He says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, the, the, the object, the, the direction of your singing on the Lord's Day is horizontal just as much as it is vertical. Uh, this is why I often encourage, and even myself do it in practice, turn when I'm singing. I'm not turning because it looks cool, um, you know, just trying to be hip or something. No, no, I'm singing to you, and you're to sing to people around you. You're to encourage one another with these words. Friends, do you recognize something about this text? This is why you can't do worship at home. Let me say that again for the ones in the back. This is why you can't do church at home. This is why you turning on Mr. Osteen uh, um, at home is in church. Or, or downloading a podcast. Or I know what you did this morning. watch Charles Stanley, right? This morning at 7 o'clock. Or whenever you can. Right? That's not church. That maybe might have been edifying. It might have been encouraging to you. But it wasn't church. Paul says that, that Christian worship happens in the context of a corporate gathering of other Christians. Period. Regardless of what someone has convinced you otherwise, I am trying to convince you this morning that Paul in the Bible, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that you are commanded to sing on the Lord's Day to those around you. He doesn't say, hey, all the professional choir singers address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. No, no, he says church address one another in psalms. You know, it's one of the greatest ways you probably rebel against God every week and you don't even realize it. It's a subtle way. But I guarantee it because I've talked to you. And I've heard you say it. Oh, pastor, you don't they don't want to hear me sing. Think about that in the context of me leading worship. You think people really come here to hear me sing? The whole point of me singing up here is to help you and diminish that stupid idea that you have to have professionals singing on the stage. If I can do it, you can do it. More than that, I want you to listen to this. If God created you to sing and you refuse to do it, you, this is an act of cosmic rebellion against God whereby you are saying, God, you failed in your creation of me. You're not as powerful. You're not as as good of creator as you think you are because you failed. My voice box is broken. God created you to sing and he commands you to sing for others. You you see also here in this passage that it's not about you. (laughs) Did you miss that point? 19, look at it again, address one another. It ain't about you. The corporate gathering of the local church is about those sitting around you. So get this, what does that mean when you're not here? What are you saying to your brothers and sisters when the Ravens game at one o'clock is more important than getting up early and coming to church? What is that saying when when you're, you know, I got other things to do. Man, I got groceries. I've got, it's been a busy week. I got a lot going on. So we're not exhortating. We're not talking about vacation. We're not talking about those kind of things here. We're talking about willfully saying my rest is more important than gathering with God's people. That I might gather and encourage them. I want you to see also in this passage that your gathering and singing is not passive but active. You see, you've grown up. In a church culture, and I'll say because this, this has been going on since well before the 60s. A church culture that saw church as merely about self and not about others. You've been programmed because you're a sinner like me that life resolves around me and my personal preferences. right? So much so that I can customize you know, everything in life. To my personal taste and preferences. Friends the church is not that way. The church is about gathering. So that you might be actively involved. So don't think when you're sitting. Or standing and singing. That all that's going up here is the activity. The real worship. No no no. no. It's out there. It's all of it. Together. That's worship. Well I could say so much more about this. We could just tease this forever. But I want you to notice what he says. What we are to sing. Notice what he says we are to sing. We are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, some have made much of these. There's not much distinction. Paul doesn't mean to to, to have this sort of categorical type of songs, but rather exhaustively saying there are different types of singing. And that's true. Sometimes we gather and we sing old hymns. Sometimes we sing songs that have been put to music. Sometimes we sing spiritual type songs. Maybe more contemporary choruses. What Paul's point is there is a variety of musical arrangements and you're to sing all of those. A variety of music. But the point I think he's making here is not so much the style, but the content. What matters is what we're singing. Did you know that countless hours are put into every service to ensure that every song that is sung matches the theological theme that we're going to think about in the sermon. That every prayer that's prayed and every scripture verse that you hear from the beginning to the end has been meticulously chosen to match the theological theme of the sermon so that everything is united together And content matters. It's another point why we print our music, because content matters. I want you to see the words you're singing and hide them into your hearts. Why do Christians sing songs? Because it is one of the greatest ways we teach. We teach through song. When you learn the ABCs, they set it to a song, right? God created us to learn through song, through melody. Look, honestly, if we live in a world of just constantly boring, just information transfer, you know, heavy literature. No, it is poetry's beautiful, beautiful language, right? And it's memorable, right? We sing songs because it's memorable. The old, old story that we love to tell, right? I guarantee you, you probably know a dozen hymns by heart. You may not know every word of them, but boy, when you're going through your day, amazing grace just somehow comes into your mind, right? God uses them. The Spirit of God uses them. Uh, in fact, it is how God, through the Reformation, brought about the Reformation through hymn singing. When Luther began to write hymns, he was informing his congregations during the Wesleyan re- revivals. Wesley, the Wesley brothers, wrote over 6,000 hymns. 6,000. Oh, you think about uh, John Bunyan and the Only Hymnal. This crazy amount of hymn writing. And the way, even today, this morning, you and I sang hymns that were written 500 years ago. Because the doctrinal truth is still the same today. What we sing matters. Content matters. you remember in the book of Acts, Luke tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were were listening to him. Through that, through their hymn singing, the gospel was being proclaimed. So, not only is hymn singing teaching and, and a, a way that we can remember doctrinal truth, it has a way of edifying those around. I've said often, when I'm weary and downcast and discouraged, to hear you sing, hear you all sing. At the top of your lungs with great passion because you believe it, it is well with my soul. You know, do you know, sister or brother, when you gather, you might have had an awesome week. But the person next to you might not have. And they need to hear you remind them of that doctrinal truth. That it is well with my soul. How do you approach the Lord's Gathering? How do you approach it? Who's the focus? Is it your personal preferences? Friend, I am so thankful the pastor of a congregation does not harp on me in what we sing. It is a measure of your maturity not to divide over how we sing on the Lord's Day. Seriously. I have been a part of congregations that want to divide over contemporary, traditional, and anything in between. It is a sign of maturity of a congregation that is willing to submit to the elders and be taught the scriptures on what cr- corporate worship really is about. Sign of maturity. Who's the focus, though, of your gathering? When we gather, who is your primary focus? Who is the object of your singing? Is it only God? Nothing wrong with that, as we'll see in a moment. But that we are to consider what Paul writes. That the object of your singing those around you. Next time you sing the song in a moment, next Lord's Day, remember that you're not singing merely to God, but you're singing to one another. Well, let's move on. And he does move on from the horizontal to the vertical. He continues there in verse 19, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. Not only are we commanded, but here we see that we're compelled to sing. We're compelled to sing. The object of our worship is Christ. But there is a compelling nature to our singing. We sing because we can't help but sing. I'll be honest with you. Jesus paid it all. Yes. I want to sing. that. I I need to remind myself of that. Because I am a sinner. And I need to be reminded that, that, that God's love for me is not based on my personal performance this week. But on the death of Christ. Or that promise. And there is a fount filled with blood. That we will, there's a there's a day when we will sin no more. That's exciting. That is hopeful, and that's encouraging, and that's compelling. I my kids make fun of me all the time because I sing all day long. Because not because I sound good, I sound terrible. But 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 because I'm compelled to sing. The truths of the gospel compel me to lift praises to God. Make up songs. I don't whatever just vocalize it to God in song about his greatness and goodness. One author wrote this, singing is not optional. Singing is commanded by Paul because it's the nature of God expressed in the gospel of grace and salvation to which is a necessary response to grateful faith with our whole being. Singing affects your whole body, right? When you sing your favorite song, you know, Elvis song or whatever it is, right? You know, when you're in the moment, right? And you're in the car, jamming down the road, singing your favorite song. It affects your whole body, doesn't it? It, It's a soul activity. Why wouldn't we use our whole bodies, our whole soul, to lift praises to our God who saved us and redeemed us and rescued us, irregardless of our sin and rebellion? We see here the vertical nature that we are to sing praises to the Lord. That Christ is the object of Christian worship. Next time you're talking to your Jehovah Witness neighbors, ask them why it's appropriate to worship Jesus. Why does the Bible tell us to sing praises to a man? Well, Because he's not just merely a man. He's the God man, Jesus Christ, the Savior the eternal God of the universe. What makes Christian worship distinct from all other worship is that Christ is the ultimate object of our worship. We sing songs about Jesus. We sing gospel-saturated songs about what the Father did through the Son by the Spirit. Christ is our object. And so we make melody, we sing to the Lord. But not only that, we also notice that That the Father is involved. Notice here, in the gathering of God's people, we're not only singing, but that we're also giving thanks. I want you to notice a couple things about this exhortation. That one of the results of a spirit filled life is a life of gratitude. One of the ways you know whether or not the Spirit of God is in you, whether or not you are being filled up on God, is are you grateful? Is your life characterized by gratefulness or bitterness? Notice here what he says when we're to be thankful. When are we to be thankful? Always, he says. Be thankful always. In other words, there is not a time in which we're not thankful. It's a continual activity. Giving thanks is ongoing. It should happen On a regular basis, not merely on Thanksgiving. We gather every Lord's Day. And I don't want you to diminish and think that that prayer of Thanksgiving is is just sort of relegated to the lowest on the totem pole there. Or when we give our offering to God. And give thanks for the gifts he's given to us. That is an act of worship. We don't want to diminish that. We want to elevate that and see what that is. We are to give thanks always. And notice, for what? All things. We're to give thanks not only continually, but comprehensively. You mean always and for everything? Yeah, that's what he says, isn't it? Look at it. He says, giving thanks always and for everything. Now, I know you're like me. It's easy to give thanks to God. When you're being blessed by God. When there's money in the bank, there's not a doctor visit on the calendar, all is well with the grandkids. It's another thing, isn't it? When you are in the midst of a trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. Perhaps at work, in your marriage, with your children. He says always there. For all things, for everything. Many times I've heard you say you've gone through a trial and you learned God's purpose. You may not have known the purpose at the beginning. You may not really even maybe today know, but you you trust that God has a purpose for all things. All those that are called according to his purpose, right? Or as he exhorts, as Paul exhorts the church in Thessalonica, give thanks in all circumstances. So we thought about two weeks ago, really, in all, yes, in all circumstances. We're not only be thankful, continually, comprehensively. Notice here how we are to be thankful, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the means and mediator of our thanksgiving. He's the lens in which we see our thankfulness. In other other words, think of it this way. Every circumstance of life should be read through, filtered through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the authors do, and this is what the apostles do in teaching Christians in suffering. For example, Peter says, look, when you're suffering... Just remember, Jesus suffered too. You see? He took it through the lens of the gospel, and he gave them not rose-colored glasses, you know, just kind of pass, I don't care what happens to me kind of attitude, but rather sees that when you suffer, you're more like Jesus than when you are blessed. Right? You You see this? I mean, look at Jesus. I mean, the guy... Our Savior did not have a good life now, okay? All right. When you suffer, you are more like Jesus. We suffer through the name of Christ. We're thankful in all circumstances through Christ, for he is our mediator, the one whom has given us access to the Father. Then notice here who the object, to whom do we give thanks? Well, particularly here, Paul doesn't say we give thanks to Jesus, but rather to God the Father. Notice what he says. Give thanks to God the Father through Jesus. The object of our thanksgiving is the Father who sovereignly, sovereignly rules over the cosmos. The reason why we give thanks to him, as James says, is because he is the Father of lights. Everything comes from him. Good and bad. Finally here, we're not only to be thankful, we see finally that we are to submit to one another. One of the evidences, the result of a spirit-filled life is submission. Submission is a dirty, dirty word, isn't it? In our culture it is. Submitting. Oftentimes in our minds, we have been programmed in our culture that subservient means submission to be in submission as someone is to be their slave their servant but in a biblical sense that's not it at all notice what he writes here he says submitting to one another out of reverence for christ now paul here is using this as a transition to what he'll talk about what we'll think about next week which is particularly wives submitting to their husbands and husbands submitting to christ But here he says that we are to submit to one another. There it is again, that mutual submission. That mutual submitting to one another. What does that mean? What does it mean to submit to one another? Well, the word that Paul uses here literally means to to arrange under a particular order. Uh, Where this would show up in the language of Paul's day would be in a military context. In the military, we know the military is ordered, right? There's a chain of command. There's some order to the the military. And Paul uses this word in the context that they would have understood it to mean that the church is to be arranged under authority. It is to be ordered. The church of Jesus Christ is not to be disordered, but to have order to it as ordained by God. So it's not man-made order. It's not imposed order. To be very clear, it's biblical God-ordained order. So, for example, Peter exhorts the younger members of the church to be subject to the elders. To submit themselves to the elders. Or in Philippians, Paul exhorts the church in Philippi. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. John Stott writes this, The Holy Spirit is a humble spirit, and those who are truly filled with him always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is one of their most evident characteristics that they submit to one another. Friend, are you constantly known for rebelling against those in authority? Do passages like that in Hebrews 13 that exhort you to obey Your pastors, for they give watch over your soul. Does that trouble you? Husbands and wives, wives, does it trouble you that Paul is going to exhort you to submit to your husband? Children, does it trouble you that that you're exhorted to submit to your parents? As Christians, this is a character that should show up. A willingness to submit to one another in an orderly fashion. The kind of church we should have on the Lord's Day is an ordered church. That is why we follow an order of service. It's not a free-for-all. Why? Because of this passage right here. This passage literally is teaching us that we are to have an ordered gathering of God's people. That we are to submit to one another. That, there's a high, there, that, that there is a structure to how God has ordained his church. That Jesus has ordered his church in a particular way for a particular purpose. And one of the ways you submit to one another is not by having consensus, but putting others' opinions above your opinion. You've been a part of those business meetings. Or personal preference was the battleground someone wanted to take? I want the wall purple. No, I want the wall blue. Who cares? Jesus, you know. But friends, we know that in a church is to be ordered. Notice here also in the text that an ordered church is a means of worshiping. He used the word reverence, that we do this out of reverence for Christ. The word literally means worship, right? To revere Christ, to worship Christ, is to submit to one another. Submitting to the elders, submitting to one another, to love one another and care for one another, to see someone as more important than yourself. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, do all things decently and in order. Christian life is a spirit-filled life that is transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Spirit-filled living results in the sort of corporate life we've been thinking about. That we're to sing to one another songs. We're to sing praises to our Lord. That we are to give thanks. That we are to vocalize our thanksgiving to God the Father through Christ. And we are to submit to one another. Submit ourselves to those in authority over us to give God glory. In these ways, the church glor- reveals God's glory and demonstrates his goodness among us in the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the grace you've given us in Christ. We do pray this morning as we gather around the table, there would be evident unity among us, even in our singing, even our praying, even in our thoughts today. Unify your church for your glory and our good in Christ. Amen. Well, as our ushers come forward um, to...